Welcome to Untying Knots with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Untying Knots. This is your host, Perry Clark. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in San Jose, California, also known as the Silicon Valley. And today, we're going to be having a very interesting chat with my guest host, Dr. Natalie Jones. Now, I want to remind everyone that this podcast is not a substitute for therapy. Please contact your local therapist and have the sessions that are best designed for you and the situation you're dealing with. Now, today's host, our guest host, is Dr. Natalie Jones, who is based out of Oakland, California. She has received her master's in clinical counseling psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, her doctorate in clinical psychology from the California School of Professional Psychology in San Francisco. Dr. Jones is also the host of a podcast known as A Date with Darkness, which specializes in providing education and tips on healing with narcissistic abusive relationships. She's also written for Mind Journal, Pesky, or Pensky, a law firm, Therapy for Black Girls and Medium, and has also been featured on For My Man on TV One and Fox News Sacramento, as well as several other podcasts. Welcome to Untying Knots, Dr. Jones. <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm well, so happy to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you, because you were also someone I, uh, when I started to think about actually doing this, I consulted to see what was your experience with it. Absolutely. I'm happy to um have helped you help to motivate you in the right direction of podcasting. It's a, it's a nice little world over here in podcasters universe. (laughs) Ah, Yes, it is. So I have listened to a number of your episodes on, uh, on date with darkness and from, uh, from the first one where you spoke about your history. And I was wondering for those who have not had a chance to hear about your podcast, if you could give us just a synopsis of how you got started and brought you into the psychology world. Oh man. Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I was just thinking about this the other day because I think it's my, it started in August of 2017. So what is that, four-year anniversary? Something like that. <laughs> yeah. So I was just thinking about that. Um, you know, I got started with the podcast. Um, uh, I think I thought when I started the podcast that it would be an excellent way to pure procure clients mm-hmm. for my private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got started with that idea in mind that, Hey, I'll just, um, I'll just sort of talk about my specialty, my niche, mm-hmm. you know, my passions um, in terms of, you know, narcissistic abuse. And so, you know, the, the first idea I had is, you know, it'll help procure clients for, um, you know, my private practice. That's one idea. I wouldn't say it was the first, but the second one would be to, um, have discussions around relationships and educating folks. Um, you know, when I got into the private practice world, I felt like there were a lot of people that were just kind of doing the same thing I was doing is that we have this idea of what love in a relationship is supposed to be, but we don't really know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. We don't really know how to get it in the way that feels right. And is very healthy for us. Um, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. so just sort of, uh, being able to assess who's not really good for us, who's not healthy for us, who's abusive to us um, in how we can work through, you know, our narratives, our childhood traumas, um, all of that kind of good stuff, mm-hmm. get relationships that are actually loving that are very healthy and relationships that we deserve to have. So I think that was the, that actually was the overarching theme. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, private practice, um, getting clients there would be an an extra nuance. And then, you know, from there, it just kind of took off and opened up another world. um, So tapped into a lot of other things that I didn't Mm -hmm. know that it would. Uh Again, I might refer to you as I discover some of these other places as well. Or, and so one of the things, is, as we said, that you work with abusive relationships and especially narcissism. So for those people who are not familiar with what narcissism is, could you give us a brief de- uh, definition to start Absolutely. as a basis? 
Yeah, thank you for asking that. And I, I work with I work with both ends of the spectrum, just to be clear. So I work with people who have a history of antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. And I do a lot of work with forensics as well in terms of uh, cases, legal cases and things like that. So that's another area, but also in working with victims of abuse. Um, so, you know, short and sweet and textbooky, um, because I, one of the things that I, I, um, I've noticed is that narcissism tends to be one of those words that is applicable to everybody now. So it's one of those words that are overutilized. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about the pathology of narcissism, meaning that we're talking about someone with narcissistic personality disorder, I think what I'll start with is a hallmark, which is that that person um, is very, usually very grandiose, Mm -hmm. um, views themselves as being very godlike. They lack empathy. And usually they lack the ability to be in healthy relationships because of their lack of empathy. So a lot of their relationships that they are in are for the purposes of secondary gain, which means that they um, they use people for their own personal benefit. Like, what can I get out of you? What mm-hmm. can you do for me um, type of mentality? And so, um, again, not worrying about um, the consequences of how they may impact people or their feelings mm-hmm. um, that come from that. And so I think that's the biggest piece um, that people that those are the things that really sort of stand out is more of that lack of empathy um, that uh, um, viewing themselves as very special or in a special or beautiful category. So meaning mm. that they only align themselves with um, the best of the best. And also, you know, just not, again, not worrying about the consequences of how their actions may impact other people. And so normally that comes across is like um, gaslighting. Um, a wave of destruction in their relationships. Um, So just those would be some of the things just uh, to kind of look out for in terms of hallmarks of narcissism. Mm -hmm. I know a colleague of of mine who's on the East Coast was saying that he was seeing a lot more people who are narcissistic victims uh, coming to his practice. Mm -hmm. And I I said to him, uh, given everything that has happened essentially in the last five, going on six years, has brought a lot of people's attention to what narcissism is and can be. Yes. And with that has also been the question, I think, how are we starting to see this more as BIPOC people, which means Black, Indigenous, people of color, mm. dealing with narcissism either outwardly coming towards us or even within our own cultures? Oh, that's a good question. And I'm very glad you asked that. I think not a lot of people think about that, um, but it actually happens. And I do think that narcissism within a culture is going to look very, very different. Um, but as a, as a whole, I think things have changed a lot more because of COVID too. Mm-hmm. Many people are being stuck in the house and, and stuck around people that they don't necessarily like, meaning spouses. Mm-hmm. Uh, abuse is coming out a lot more due to the strain of social isolation. Um, and as well, there's been a recent publication on black women also mm-hmm. leaving their jobs in droves. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons that we see this mass exodus of black women from their jobs during the COVID pandemic, especially is because of the toxic workplace culture, toxic bosses mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that um, covert racism um, that they've experienced. Um, so there has been actually some public research looking at that. But also when you think about culture, and I think I wrote like a little Instagram post, but I've been working on like creating the sort of written work um, that I want to to take a look or that I want to develop more is what I've noticed or what a lot of my clients have noticed, especially um, because I work with a lot of heterosexual corporate America, black women, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them are trying to reintegrate themselves back into dating and back into healthy relationships. 
and what they've noticed um, with a lot of uh, Black men, noticeably lately, um, one of the themes that I've been seeing in their practice is that Black men, heterosexual Black men in California or in this area that they've experienced don't particularly care for Black women in the Mm. way that that comes across in relationships. Um, And I'm not, I want to preface this by saying that this isn't applicable to every Black man, of course, Mm. and that this isn't every Black um, heterosexual relationship. I'm just saying that one of the themes that I'm seeing with my clients that are having these sort of struggles Mm. is that, um, you know, one of the things they would do is put down um, Black women, or they will be in a relationship with a Black woman when they have a preference for Mm -hmm. other. And when they have a preference for another, that means that it's like, I'm better than you. And you should be glad that I'm with someone like you because you're not the typical person that I go for. Mm -hmm. And so instead of you having expectations of me of having a healthy relationship, be thankful for what you get. Be thankful that I'm having sex with you. Be thankful that you're even in my presence. Um, And so that's one way that it's actually coming across too. Another way that it comes across, even within our culture, I think with African-American culture, we have a strong cultural backbone that includes family. Mm -hmm. Um, And in Black families, especially, the mother is usually the matriarch, of the family. And so what I'm seeing or what I have seen before is that, you know, even with mothers that are narcissistic that view their children as an extension of Mm. themselves, that view them, their children as possessions, or they don't really consider their children's human beings is that there's this obligatory um, relationship. I I'm obligated to stay in this relationship with my mother you know, and then there's pressure from other members of the family. Well, you only get one mom. You know, we know that she's all this way. We we all know that she's this way or this and that. And so those would be some of the themes um, that I'm seeing just to keep it short and sweet that uh-huh. you know, there is the there is a there is the trend of having the narcissistic mother. Um, narcissistic mother and their daughters, as well as narcissistic mothers and their sons um, that I'm seeing. And I do also think in my work that part of um, narcissistic, Black narcissistic mothers has a lot to do with when we see Black men um, say that I don't prefer Black women. And also Mm -hmm. you see that too with narcissistic Black mothers and their daughters when they put Mm -hmm. down or they have this sort of colorism mm-hmm. complex and they sort of put down everything that is wonderful and beautiful about being black. And mm-hmm. there's this pressure to conform um, mm-hmm. to being something other than yourself. I hope that makes sense. Oh, it does. And it actually hits on two questions. I do actually, I have okay. as follows from that. Um, <laughs> Cause you very much, and I know you've mentioned and you're very much focused on black women and such, but yes. I'm also wondering too, was what happens when we have the narcissistic father and their relationship, either with their, with their daughters or even with their sons, which I think also has its playing into this Absolutely. element, what we're talking about with the issue of in the heterosexual standpoint of Absolutely. the men resisting, rejecting, other black women, or at least just other women in some cases in general, no matter what nationality there are. Absolutely. And so I think your question is what happens when there's narcissistic fathers? I want to make mm-hmm. sure I'm touching on that question. Yes. And I, that's actually a great question to ask because that's actually a show that I'm working on crafting now because I've had so many people reach out to me and ask that. Mm-hmm. And I think that also there is an impact there in terms of how we relate to men. You know, mm-hmm. when you have a narcissistic father and that father sort of, again, objectifies their children, that has a lot to do with how children um, or how the, as young adults or as adults, we begin to relate to other men. So, for example, women with narcissistic fathers may tend to people please, mm-hmm. may tend to um, overcompensate in order to try to 
see their worth in that man's eyes. And mm-hmm. so they'll continue to go back and try these different methods and try to conform themselves and bend out of shape to make it work. And I should also preface um, that I feel like there is a difference in narcissism in both men and women. Mm-hmm. And also in how that shows up um, in terms of masculinity and measurement of worth, mm-hmm. right? And when you have sons um, that are, um, you know, that may have narcissistic relationships with their fathers, what they may tend to focus on is things that are materialistic, also sort of objectifying women mm-hmm. and not really seeing women as significant or worthy mm-hmm. also, or only being there for you know, sex and childbearing and nothing more and not being able to relate, but also not being able to relate to other men. Uh, they may not be able to connect emotionally with other men. They may uh, say that they don't have other male friends as well. Mm-hmm. So again, those are some of the themes that I've seen, not comprehensive, but right. that sort of um, that caps on some of that stuff. Yeah, and sort of leads into my next one, which you mentioned, yeah, there is essentially the narcissistic, let's call him the perpetrator in this case, whether it's male or female, which I really wanted that to be also understood. It can be either sex. It is not specifically just one sex. Absolutely, yes. And the enablers that are in that. And this is actually a conversation I was having with other colleagues on a different day. Um, (laughs) We were talking about the issue of when we look at family and especially in African-American culture where family is either romanticized or seen as some, as a sacred animal, so to speak. And then we have those that are weaponizing it and the enablers that end up supporting the weaponization. What are your thoughts on that and that dynamic? You know, it's very interesting, the black family, um, And the Black family has weathered a lot of storms of trauma up until the 80s when the crack epidemic hit, right? Mm -hmm. That's when we started to see the demise of the Black family. Usually there were a lot of other struggles that we were Mm -hmm. able to withstand. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I want to say the crack epidemic popped off in Oakland, California first, if I'm not mistaken, from what I've heard. I don't know if that's true or not. but. it's a major it, urban center. So, yeah, I mean, and it's actually um, it, what I saw it on MSN a little while ago, but it's actually the number one area for human trafficking. And so what you've seen with the, the epidemic is that the family was not able to withstand that struggle. And so a lot of different things have started happening. You started uh, seeing the pipeline to prison. Mm-hmm. You started seeing, um, again, the trafficking and other areas where people were getting, um, you know, getting into trouble. And I don't want to say that it's all bad, but again, want to say that things have shifted. And mm-hmm. then you started seeing that shift where the matriarch is now the head of the family as opposed to the patriarchal thing. Mm-hmm. And then also you've seen the shift on um, media as well. So on TV, how many representations of the healthy black family do you see when you turn on TV? Mm-hmm. You know, how many shows are representative of the healthy black family? And I don't, I don't know how old you are, but I know that I'll be 42 next week. And so when I was growing up, the repres- we, we only had like a couple of families to choose from in terms of ideologies. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, Oh goodness. Um, the family from Good Times and the Cosby right. family. Right. Right. And so and now look at where we are with the Cosby family or just with the Cosby image. Mm-hmm. But those were the only two that we had to pick from. And mostly people that I talk with, they've always wanted to have that Cosby family ideal. And we both know that that's not realistic mm-hmm. traditionally i mean there there's healthy black families out there but just having that cosby family sort of ideology mm-hmm. that's not very realistic mm-hmm. and so i feel like because of what we see there's not a lot of models even on a national level in mm-hmm. which we could look at for the black family of course you know there's shows that kind of come up here and there like family matters and things mm-hmm. like that but consistently seeing 
Black families and Black people, Black men and women independently of each other doing good and being beautiful and being celebrated on television. Mm-hmm. You know, those are things in which our younger generation is looking to that and for that. And we don't really see as much of that anymore. Now we have music videos and we all know, like with hip hop culture, what's being said in hip hop hop culture Women, you you know, you got to shake your booty or you got to mm-hmm. be a sexual object and that's mm-hmm. all you can be. But black men are focusing on drugs. They're focusing on chains or other name brand items mm-hmm. to get money. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those are the sort of um, subliminal or even overt messages at this point that are being kind of uh, sent through different mediums, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that part of it is visual Part of it is knowing how to recover from an epidemic that spread mm-hmm. nationwide and had a ripple effect mm-hmm. um, and just sort of recovering that. And part of that is also just trauma as a whole that Black folks have to come back from, such as racism and just all the different uh, nuances that, that that can impact us. So I think there's multiple layers of ways in which the Black family idea has been under siege. Um, mm. And even now, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a thing to come back from and a thing that we have to work on. Um, and so, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Oh, yeah, because just talking about the Cosby family, that's a perfect example of what I'm saying about people romanticizing an ideal. And we'll move heaven and earth to try and have that ideal, even when it's falling apart around them. Well, and, you know, that's the thing is a lot of times things are chaotic in the home. And so a lot of times people look to an escape and they look to things that they see on TV as somehow being real or somehow Mm -hmm. hoping for that because that's the only other model that they have. Mm -hmm. And so that's why that could be so far reaching for them. Mm-hmm. It's an escape, which is understandable. Yeah, we all want our escapes. And that's something we're seeing, too, with the issues that we've had with people not wanting to keep to wearing masks or, or <laughs> yeah, I, for those who are, you should have just seen the look that Dr. Jones gave <laughs> with that one. I mean, just the whiff your ass with wearing masks. Um, Crazy. So one of the other things, and we're going to be going to break shortly, um, I just wanted to sort of also touch on is the standpoint of, um, and you may have to answer this more after we come back from the break, but one of the things has also come up is the issue of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And I just know because of some recent things that have happened both in my clients and in my own family and so forth. The concerns around the images around meth, domestic violence are also something that just leaves a lot of questions. And I know just in some of the work clients I've worked with that are, that are men, they have struggled to try and talk about the fact that they're, that they're actually the victim when so much of the system is, and rightfully so, set up to protect women. But I know I say to my clients that it's like, if you thought about this from a same-sex perspective, yes, there's a man who is the perpetrator, but that means there's a man who is the victim. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is a woman who is the victim, but that means there is a woman who is the perpetrator. And moving this out out of the binary of sex and looking at this as being a deeper human issue that connects with narcissism, which I think is probably something that when we're talking about domestic violence really needs to be brought into this more than just an anger issue. Absolutely. Yeah. I have some thoughts on that. And, um, you know, my thoughts are that perhaps we shouldn't separate the issue and the reason why, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that we, we should separate the issue based on gender and the reason Mm -hmm. why is exactly for what you said. And exactly goes back to what, I was speaking to earlier, while narcissism shows up differently in men and women, so does victimization, Mm -hmm. so does abuse, right? Mm -hmm. And also back to what you were speaking to in terms of the lack of resources. Um, And when I was saying that, um, you know, one of the ways that narcissism shows up in men, um, you know, is in terms of masculinity, 
Mm-hmm. And we hear that term toxic masculinity. Um, and in terms of what men have to offer, like even when you think of narcissism as a whole, there's a lot of sort of with narcissists, um, a lot of narcissists have this sort of sexual prowess. And how can I be more desirable? And one of the ways to do that is through uh, sexuality in terms of how they look physical and how they come across as masculine. I'm talking about men. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about domestic violence and you talk about domestic violence against men, what's the first thing people think? Yeah, that can't happen to a man. You're not man enough. You're getting Mm -hmm. your butt beat. You're Mm -hmm. not man enough. You Mm -hmm. know, what, what are you, what are you crying about? You know, and so that's going to look different. And again, when you talk about resources, if they are getting the crap kicked out of them, and I've known men that do that, that, that have been victims as well, where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. Where are they going to go? What kind of shelter are they going to go to? Those are few and far between. Sure, they can come to um, counseling. They can do all of that. But if they've got to get away from a home, where there could be stalking involved, where there's danger involved. You know, there's a lot of men that have to withstand that because of this sort of toxic masculinity culture mm-hmm. in that you, you're not manning up. You're not being man enough. Um, you're letting a woman beat you or, you know, that, that's kind of cute or whatever, you know, it's kind of looked at in that way. And so um, those would be things to think about. And I want to be respectful of your time. Not a problem. And we'll, we'll definitely pick that up as we come back to this next half. Right now, let's just go take a brief break and we'll be back with Dr. Natalie Jones to talk more about the world of narcissism, African-Americans and just what, what we're trying to live through right now. So stay tuned and we'll be right back shortly. Awesome. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. You are listening to Untying Knots. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. And welcome back to Untying Knots. I'm here with Dr. Natalie Jones, host of a Date for Darkness, a date, a date with Darkness uh, podcast. And we're having an interesting discussion and a typical discussion for around these subjects of narcissism <laughs> and relationship abuse. Because I know we've talked very much, we were just talking before the break about domestic violence and so forth. But I think something that we also forget to think about is also things like peer relationships as well. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, so many things in this culture, in this society gets focused on the romantic relationship and or the family relationship. But yep. what happens when it comes into friends, uh, peer groups and just groups in general? Same. It's the same. The toxic Mm -hmm. is toxic is toxic is toxic and unhealthy is unhealthy is unhealthy. So in actuality, the dynamics that play out are very much the same as you find in those close, intimate partners relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that sex is not involved per se. So Mm -hmm. you could still be getting manipulated, still be taken advantage of, still be um, degraded still be abused in other ways um, that is more, it can be overt or covert and show up as a friend that's um, not being supportive, but also draining all of your energy, wanting all of the focus to be on them. So Mm -hmm. it shows up very similarly. Mm -hmm. And I think you bring up an excellent point in that friendships are often overlooked because they are, you know, we tend to say, we tend to want to most women that come to see me and men mm-hmm. too, they want to, they have this tendency to want to focus on the romantic relationship. Reason being this because they're spending more time. Mm-hmm. We're living together. 
we're, we're having sex together. You know, we, we have this more intimate and up close relationship is what we tend to think. And so most people that come to see me, they're like, I want to fix it. I want to connect with my partner. We're not connecting. We're not having sex anymore. We're mm-hmm. not talking to each other anymore. Um, my partner is giving me the silent treatment in my own home. Whereas with friends, we kind of come and go. We, we don't necessarily live with our friends or share space with our friends. We kind of connect with them when we do but it can be is is just as toxic and have a lot of the same exchanges, if you will. Mm-hmm. Are you film or familiar with Dr. Romney? Yes. I understand some of my clients I've referred to look at some of her videos. It's like, this is further knowledge on this. And it's a much simpler form than reading a book in some cases. And I know one of the things she's recently talked about a series is on money as well. Yes. And how that shows up. Yes. And I know I talk with some of my clients about how we use money is also a reflection of our self-esteem. And I'm just curious then, how does that also show up for you and your experience with couples, either our family or even friends around the money issue? Oh, my gosh. When you talk about narcissistic abuse, that is usually, again, another hallmark there. Because one of the things that narcissistic people will do is my money is my money, but your money is also my money. Mm-hmm. And they will drain you financially mm-hmm. because, again, when you start talking about forms of control, one of the ways in which people can be controlled is through sex. Mm-hmm. One of the ways people can be controlled is through emotions and also through money. Anything that allows you to have some sort of freedom and independence is what they want to typically control. And those are usually one of the three hallmarks. So again, you know, I have a lot of uh, people that I work with that have gone through the ringer mm-hmm. financially and their money has been drained. They may have started out in a relationship with good credit, good handle on their finances, and then they got with someone, everything went down the drain. Um, also too, I worked with a lot of people that are in high conflict um, divorces or high conflict child custody and support mm-hmm. cases. And one of the things that narcissistic people will do is that they will create unnecessary conflict in the court, causing mm-hmm. you to drain your finances on an attorney. We got to go back to court for some sort of minuscule, whatever, just mm-hmm. because they want to assert their authority and they will try to drain them. Um, in uh, speaking of Peskin, uh, who I've mm-hmm. written for, Mr. Stephen Peskin, he was on my um, podcast and he talked a lot about how this shows up in court in how, um, you know, narcissistic people show up to his law office all the time and they don't care what it costs. They just want to ruin the other person. They want to ruin them in every way that they can. And one of the ways that they do that is financially. And if you're, um, you know, if you're used to being abused, you know, a lot of times people, what they want to do is they just want to conform or they just want less chaos or less stress in their home. And so they'll just do whatever. They'll give that person whatever they want to try to have some peace, remain Mm -hmm. invisible and um, there's there's things that um, they could do to drain you financially. Another thing that shows up, which is not often talked about, but this happens quite a bit, especially in some of the lower socioeconomical families, is what parents will do hmm. um, that will ruin their kids' finances is they'll get bills and start taking out um, things using their child's social security number. And so they are, they do that because they don't have good credit or have right. good finances. And so they're basically ruining their child financially before they even have a chance to have any sort of financial freedom or future. And this is in its own way, a generational trauma. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because you you are exploiting your child for your own personal gain. There's other ways in which parents can exploit their child financially for personal gain. Um, so, for example, when I did my dissertation study, um, you know, there were a couple of women in there who were felons. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the ways that their mothers or parents extorted them financially is that they would have 
their child sort of dressed down, um, appear like they weren't well taken care of or that they were in some sort of dire need and go and beg people for money. Um, Or, you know, they would have their children shoplift for them uh, when they wanted something from the store because who's going to do something to a child? You know, so that's another way in which, um, you know, that may be more material, but I feel like it falls in that sort of realm of financial exploitation as well. There's so many uh, nuances, you know, getting credit, giving a loan, um, let me get some money or, you know, also in our family culture, the expectation that regardless of what your parents go through, you are to take care of them no matter what. So if your parents aren't good with money, if your parents are, you know, doing whatever, it doesn't matter because because since you are their child, you are mm-hmm. financially obligated uh, to take care of them. And you see that a lot in African-American culture, Afro-Caribbean culture mm-hmm. and all of that, that sort of sense of obligation to financially care for people. And that gets back into what I was saying about that sort of sacred animal mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. then gets weaponized back mm-hmm. against us mm-hmm. and and i know in one of your others you're uh you had someone reading your dissertation if i remember correctly which very, yeah it was just talking about that and i think some of all of this also comes up in when we're talking about the issue of shame which is i think the tool that gets used most often in that situation uh in the recent book that came out you are your best thing by Toronto burke and Brene brown where they also just look at how that shame has been fl- basically flung at people yeah so. and i have i have my own personal thoughts about that book in particular because mm-hmm. i feel mm-hmm. like that's also you know when you talk about black shame but then you have mm-hmm. Brene brown mm-hmm. like a co-author you know mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, and that also in its own way gets back to what we were talking to about what you're saying about the relationships where um, someone is basically seeing the other race as being the better option. They are the better op- option. Mm. They are the better expert. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's you're seeing that a lot more, you know, nowadays with other people. And I mm-hmm. don't feel like this happens with any other race. Like when, when we had Asian um mm-hmm the Asian uh, hate, you know, Mm -hmm. hate crimes going on. I didn't really see that sort of, well, let's get another race to come up here and talk about what it's like as an Mm -hmm. Asian to experience these hate crimes. Mm -hmm. And you notice it a lot. I noticed it a lot. It's always something that's happened too, where Mm -hmm. white folks or other folks get to profit off of black pain. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really happen. Like I said, with, I feel in other races. And then you notice it with black lives matter. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well now Mm -hmm. that's black lives matter is making some folks some money. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so you start to look at that, you know, that experience of that shame, that pain, that brutality, people that are losing their lives. How can this now be a profit? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's my own, you know, I don't know, but that's, that gets into, and I back to even briefly what we're talking about, the aspect of the not wearing masks. It's like, how many of these people who basically said all lives matter, we're the ones now aren't willing to wear masks because essentially lives don't matter. Yeah, lives don't matter. And, you know, there's another, you know, when you start thinking about the Black culture and how it's been sort of... um demonized as you Mm -hmm. used earlier you see that a lot too also not just with that whole you know all lives matter and all this other kind of stuff but you see that a lot with the culture appropriation Mm -hmm. when you you know braids and things like that were you know we had to pass the crown act Mm -hmm. in order to wear natural hair to work Mm -hmm. or to be uh recognized as you know our hair not being weaponized against us for growing Mm -hmm. in its own natural state Right. Big lips and big booty were, you know, that was frowned upon. So that body typology, that uh, colorism. um, And now you see all these people with all these dark tans and things Mm -hmm. like that. So you talk about cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. So that's the different level in which, you know, our culture has been weaponized for us, but is used for personal gain. 
for other cultures. So narcissism is on a systemic and a cultural societal level as well. And which is part of, like you said earlier, having so many women want leaving, like say the corporate world. So there's actually both a skill drain that happens, shall we say at the corporate level, but uh, let's talk about just briefly some of the strength this means. Many of these women are also finding ways to create new businesses and opportunities. So I'm all for here for that and let them build the world, sister. (laughs) Right. And I think that's something that it's unfortunate that's born out of trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, because what historically a lot of black women do is there are a lot of black women that are super women. And so as a black woman, um, I know that my mom sat me down and had a talk, you know, you got to, you know, you have to have Mm -hmm. that talk where you have to work twice as hard to show up and be present and be even in the same ranking as someone who's mediocre above of another race, right? Mm -hmm. That's not performing or not pulling their weight, but you have to show up twice as hard. And so that's what you're seeing. You're seeing these women that are working two or three times as hard trying to show up and outperform. And it's still Mm -hmm. not enough. Mm -hmm. It's still not enough. And so they, why continue to pour into something that's not going to acknowledge or recognize them or, you know, in the long run, give them any sort of generational wealth, which is Mm -hmm. another way that narcissism shows up in finances. Mm -hmm. How many black families do you know that are in the top 1%? Very, very few. If at any, if any, I don't know Mm -hmm. of any, I mean, you got Oprah, she's pretty close, Mm -hmm. but again, when you're talking about generational wealth, when you're talking about, you know, the, five food companies that own everything that's sold in grocery stores. Mm -hmm. You're talking about ownership of other countries and things like that. You have people that are doing well. You have like Jay-Z and Beyonce that are doing well, but do they have generational wealth? Do they have the Rockefeller? Can they go out and buy the federal reserves? Can Mm -hmm. they go out and do that kind of wealth where, you know, uh, 400 years from now, their family is going to still be, at the top of the food chain, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's that's another way in which people can say whatever they mm-hmm. want to about Black folks wanting some sort of um, uh, restitution. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, all that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is generational wealth has been blocked mm-hmm. um, from or taken from, you know, um, Black families. You've seen massacres where properties and things like that have been taken from and just sold off and things like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So generational trauma, generational wealth, they all have their connections with narcissism as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that is a systemic and cultural thing in which opportunities have been intentionally blocked mm-hmm. or taken from other people. Um, and then when you talk about, you know, oppressing folks in a work culture, you know, and to make the other top percent mm-hmm. wealthier and that 1% isn't you or me. Yep. What can you say? Yeah. So much. But here's the proof is in the pudding as well. Yep. How I'd like to put it. Yep. Very much so. And just to say, I give the Dr. Romney and your podcast as listening homework to my clients. <laughs> so well, Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I, try, I try to spread it around. It's like, if you don't have time to sit and watch YouTube, listen to the podcast. Yeah. Just, this is the material. We can talk about more. We can talk about when you come back in. Yeah. Just what gets it to sink in and process. Mm-hmm. And that's one of our biggest things. So we're going to be heading towards our end here. And so let's move into our the section. One of the biggest sections I have for this podcast is myth and reality. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is one of the myths about getting therapy that we have? And then let's talk about the realities around that. The myth, I think, you know, if we're, if we're talking about black folks, mm-hmm. right? I think black folks have the myth that Therapy is for white people. Therapy is for crazy people. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'm not. I don't need to go to therapy until things are bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are three myths there. I don't know if you want it. (laughs) 
Well, they're three myths, but they're also very interrelated in yeah. the standpoint. And I think this not, doesn't just even stay to therapy. The things that goes to a number of other areas where so much of the, our world is built around the idea is like, if you see the bruise, then it's time to do something. I was just reading an article this morning talking about some of the issues with Kaiser's mental health yeah. and the aspect of the things that were reported in this article. We're talking about how people needed to be at, again, the worst state before something was being done. Absolutely. And that shows up in how we're dealing with mental health. That's also shown up in the issues, how we're dealing with emotional abuse in CPS situations, let alone the, let alone the DV aspect. But the reality is that we can really fix and address more of these things before it gets to the critical point. Mm -hmm. And that deals with that aspect too. And since we're talking about the aspect of how shame gets used in all of this as well, that, the need for accepting help is one of those other victims of of narcissism. The idea that you can get help out there and there's people who are willing to help you. Absolutely. You hit the nail right on the head. There's a lot more resources out there and we're living in a time where hopefully, you know, people can access them a lot more, you know, through your employer. Most employers have employee assistance programs mm-hmm. um, that provide a number of counseling sessions in which they'll pay for you. Um, there's Open Pass Psychotherapy Collective, which offers counseling at a discounted rate. Mm-hmm. There's also, you know, just many other resources. If you're a domestic violence victim, you can usually call and get counseling over the phone. And that's usually for men too, um, mm-hmm. that you can call and speak to a domestic violence counselor. And I was one for many years. Um, so, and the, you, uh, you can call the national domestic violence hotline. They're 24 seven. And so there's ways in which you can start to gravitate towards the, um, the help that's out there. Um, county assistance, um, there's community resources, church sometimes also has that. So there's different ways to access those resources. Um, I hope that answers oh, that. I, I, for everyone listening, help is there for you. It you is there. Gotta just be willing to ask. You got to be willing to ask. You have to be willing to do the work. Um, and sometimes that piece can be a bit of a struggle because sometimes people have that first encounter with a therapist that they don't like or that mm-hmm. doesn't um, do it for them. And mm-hmm. so they're like, okay, well, I got to give up and mm-hmm. then we'll wait, we'll wait some more until things get bad or they don't, you know, they don't have the the responses that they want. But again, doing your due diligence, finding someone that's right for you. Mm-hmm. And then also to like, for me, you know, I, I did the work of the same therapist I have now is the one that I had in grad school. And I, I am a bit neurotic when it comes to going to anybody for my health care, you mm-hmm. know, because as a black woman in healthcare, which is also another topic entirely, um, you, you know, things mm-hmm. get dismissed if they don't understand that. And so I have to look for people that I think it's, are going to get it. And so, you know, I went and looked through the APA and, you know, ABCI, and I found mm-hmm. someone that was a fit for me and that specialized in my issues and I pay out of pocket for my therapist, but I'm willing to, I um, manage my finances so that that is a priority to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's people that don't do that or mental health is considered, I'll just go whenever. But for me, that is a priority to me, knowing that the type of work that I'm in. Mm-hmm. And um, so I make the effort to, you know, and I'm not saying that people who can't afford therapy don't make the effort, but I know for me. Um, I am very diligent about budgeting out for that and for mm-hmm. her, and I'm willing to pay for that. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a non-negotiable for me. Right. And I think that's one of the other things in the reality is that so much of the, of most, most mental health is built around a evidence-based uh, manualized that thinks that it can be applied for everybody and everybody's going to re- respond at the exact same time. And the answer is no. You have to find the therapist that works for you. I know I'm not the right therapist for everybody. There's definitely people that I am the right fit yeah. for. Yeah. 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 So yeah. do not feel bad that this therapist didn't seem to respond. Well, guess what? There's another therapist out there that Absolutely. Will. Absolutely. And there's one that's a good fit based off of what your needs are. Mm-hmm. And I know what my needs are. Like I had some stuff 
you know, and I wanted somebody who looked like me and who could get me, mm-hmm. you know, I sort of vet people based off of that. Just like, you know, when people call me, people call me because I may look like them or because of my expertise, mm-hmm. which is great, you know, um, so I'm very niche down and I'm very specialized in that area. And so this is all, this is what I do and this is what I know. Beautiful. So we should be wrapping up here. Where can folks find you and your podcast for future? Absolutely. So you can go to my website. My website is drnataliejones.com, D-R-N-A-T-A-L-I-E-J-O-N-E-S.com, drnataliejones.com, or datewithdarkness.com. I'm also on Instagram, Dr. Natalie Jones, or A Date With Darkness, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, TikTok now, mm-hmm. and <laughs> pretty much every platform there, right? Because you got to diversify in YouTube also. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so just you could do that. And, uh, you know, so yeah, they can find me. I'm around. <laughs> no problem. So Dr. Jones, I want to thank you for coming on and being my second, my second interview <laughs> for this. This is, Yay! this is an interesting journey. And I thank you for also supporting me in this. Absolutely. I'm happy to support people, um, you know, professionals such as yourself. And I'm happy that you're going on this new venture and that hopefully you're liking it because, you know, podcasting, uh, sometimes it takes you to a place you never thought you'd go. Yeah, because they don't. Good. Yeah, because they don't cover this in our training classes, <laughs> let alone business and marketing. So, thank you, and yeah. thank you everyone for coming and listening. And tune in uh, in two weeks. We'll have our next podcast up on Voice of America. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots. Be sure to join your host Perry Clark for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.